So I'd like to give all of you who are listening some credit. You saw the word icebreaker in the title of this podcast and you thought, okay, I probably should listen to this. Because there are many who probably saw the word icebreaker and ran screaming in the other direction. So hats off for you if you're listening. Yes, today we're going to talk about icebreakers. Yes, I would like there to be a different name for them, but I haven't come up with it yet. And I am open to suggestions. And I am going to today tell you about a foolproof icebreaker. Seriously, foolproof icebreaker. Now, I don't think I have a big fat ego. I like to think of myself as humbly confident, but I guess you all could be the judge of that. But this is my foolproof icebreaker. I am here to tell you that it has never been used where I have not heard somebody say, it was awesome. I've heard people say, it was kind of transformative. I have facilitated retreats using this icebreaker, and I had to hold my own emotions in check because they were so powerful and meaningful. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. This is not like, what's your favorite dessert? Or, you know, uh, what would be your last meal? Or, you know, what's your favorite holiday? Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about why icebreakers get a bad rap, why they're important, how we screw them up, and then I'm going to tell you about my foolproof icebreaker. Thank you very much for settling in. Let's get started. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits to thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today, it turns out that the right person is me. So let's start with the question, why icebreakers get a bad rap? I bet you have your own opinions, and clearly I have a podcast and I am the only guest, so I better have some opinions. Icebreakers get a bad rap because A, we do them really badly. B, we don't really communicate the value of what I would call going there, right? People call it, oh, I don't, I really don't like to get all touchy feely. Okay, I want you to think about the work that you do. I want your board members to think about how important it is. I want all of the people associated with your organization to feel the awesome, used accurately, awesome responsibility of leadership. And you tell me that it isn't important that this group of people really understand how each other ticks. You tell me that it's not important that this group of people, all board, all staff, senior leaders, board and staff, don't actually explore the values that underpin their decision to come to be a part of your 
movement to change the world in the way your organization has been designed to do. The reason they get a bad rap is because we don't explain enough about why they are important. And then people just simply say, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that. Do we have to spend that much time on the icebreaker? I mean, we have to get stuff done. I was talking to a consultant who works with organizations in leadership transitions. And I said, what's the biggest obstacle to successful leadership transitions? And she told me that it was kind of hard to narrow it down, but that if she had to pinpoint one thing, it was that the board was not aligned around organizational and personal values that would drive the interview and decision-making process around the new leader, that they were a collection of individuals and not a team, a collection of individuals and not a team. And if you want to move from the world of a collection of individuals to a team, and you believe that is important, and I believe it is, and everyone affiliated with your organization should believe that it is, then spending time to get to know one another more deeply is absolutely essential. Okay, let me tell you what an icebreaker isn't, because we screw them up all the time. All right, let's go around the room. And let's just check in on how this board. I've done. I've been on a board that did this. Let's check in on how how everybody has been personally since our last board meeting, and maybe that was two, three months ago. That's the sole prompt. I don't know why, but it seemed to me that the vast majority of people spoke about some kind of home renovation project. Somebody talked about how finicky sub-zero fridges are. It wasn't good. I'm here to tell you it wasn't good. I also want to say that I followed someone who said, I'm really excited because since last we left, my family bought the <laughs> bought the Chicago Cubs. I just said, can we just skip over me and go on to the next person? Because I am not following that. That's not an icebreaker. That's not digging deep. I didn't learn anything. I didn't understand the person sitting to my left or to my right any more deeply. I didn't get an understanding of their values, of what, why, what motivates them to be sitting at this table. Certainly the, the person who bought the Chicago Cubs could have been on any board but was on this one. And I, I think I understood, but I wanted to hear the story. So we screw them up because we're afraid of them. We screw them up because we defer to a board chair who is driven to, quote, get things done, end quote, and does not consider this doing the work. In many, many, many ways, it is the work. So the other thing before I talk a little bit about my foolproof icebreaker is that the pandemic and life 
in a virtual space has, in fact, upgraded the value of the icebreaker. If you don't actually work to create a real personal connection with people on Zoom or Google Meet or however it is that you connect, then it is all transactional, right? Because I'm sitting here in my office all by myself and my colleague is sitting all by herself in Tennessee. There's got to be some three-dimensional interaction that is the equivalent of sharing our lunch together in the office or just shooting the breeze between calls. And so I do believe that the pandemic sort of upgraded the value of this notion of getting to understand people in a more three-dimensional way and being more intentional about that. But I also feel that particularly for boards of directors, this is foreign turf and not always easy. The icebreaker I'm going to tell you about is not an icebreaker that most board members who come out of corporate America would ever have experienced. As many of you know, I was in corporate America for 14 years, and I I never experienced an icebreaker like this or a team-building exercise like this. <laughs> My very favorite story about a team-building exercise was uh, happened in Scottsdale, Arizona, when I was at Showtime, I think, and we played night golf. Night golf. Now, I don't know what people did if they didn't actually know how to play golf. I actually did play golf. So let's start with just the sort of the issue of golf as a sport to begin with, right? And I am ever so glad that there are organizations like the First Tee love this organization that is out there working to make golf accessible for all and really getting people to understand the patience and perseverance that golf requires and demands and the resilience and uses golf as a tool to empower young adults to um, tackle challenges. I'm back to night golf, though. That's not what this was about. If you played golf, you played night golf. You put on a headlamp. You had balls that gl glow in the dark. The, what is the past tense of glow? Glue? Glowed in the dark? And at every, after every um, hole, there was a bar and food. And there, there, there was, was, what, 50 or 60 of us with headlamps on, smacking glow-in-the-dark balls, and, uh, you know, eating different food at each hole and, and imbibing. I think they call that a boondoggle. I don't think they call that an icebreaker, but I digress. Let me get to the icebreaker because I know you are busy and I know that you have hard work to do. Here's the icebreaker. I don't actually have a name for it either, so I would so welcome a name for this, but I think I call it the, auto, the autobiography book. So here are the rules. And I have some timing for it as well and some ways to facilitate a discussion around it. So here we go. Everybody on the board or everybody in the group has the same assignment. You write for two pages, no more than two pages, about yourself. Did you just break out in a cold sweat? Stay with me, please, please, please. 
about yourself. What it is it that you would like people to know about you? It could be tied to the mission of your organization, but I don't actually love being beholden to that because I actually believe that when you get extemporaneous and decide to write two, two pages about your own life, that stuff just becomes clear. So two pages. It is not a professional bio. There must be at least one photograph, and it cannot be your professional headshot. I've done this exercise where you open the book and you're reading all of these incredible stories, and you get to this one person who's included their professional bio and their headshot, and you think to yourself, everyone who reads that book is thinking to themselves, 90 days from now, that person is not going to be with the organization. They're looking for another job. And that ended up being true. So two pages, write whatever you want, whatever style you want, and as many pictures as you want. It's your story. What do you want people to know about you? That's the basic premise. No more than two pages. Format, up to you. And you don't have to be creative. I had somebody do a spoken word poem. I had a CFO do a spreadsheet. (laughs) The other rule is that if it takes you more than 90 minutes, you're overthinking it. Now, a lot of people will take more than 90 minutes and they will overthink it. You really can't keep them from doing that. But the idea is for it to be sort of what an English teacher might call a free write. That's it. That's the assignment. You have to give people enough time, but not too much time. So I like five days maybe with a weekend in between, but no more than that because people procrastinate and or they think they they edit, they re-edit. We don't want that. We want them to write it, look at it, send it in. Now, there needs to be one point person who collects and creates a single PDF book of the autobiographies. You want to make sure that the deadline that is stated is one day before the collator is going to create the PDF and send it out. And it must be sent out. I want to say a minimum of 48 hours before you do the exercise. So here's an example. You assign everybody the bio on a Thursday. You give everybody until Wednesday of the following week. Then you hound the outliers and they get it in by Thursday. By Thursday at the end of the day, the bio book goes out. And let's say it's part of a retreat sometime on Saturday. That that gives you the basic contours of the timeline. But the key is you got to leave yourself a day to hound people. You can't give people too much time to perseverate about this thing. And no one gets off the hook. Some of you are listening to me and are saying this. Oh, there's no way. 
There's no way that Cindy is going to get that on, in on time. Well, she's not going to do that. Like, Cindy is totally not going to do that. It has to come from the ED and the board chair, depending on what group is meeting, right? It has to be very clear that everyone has to be in on this. Every single time I have done this, I have gotten 100% participation. Every time I have suggested it to people, they have gotten 100% participation. You will get people to do this. Now, on my blog, I have a download of a bio that I myself wrote because I was facilitating a retreat and I wanted people to get an idea of kind of what I had in mind when I talked about a personal autobiography on two pages. And so on my personal two pages, I have one of my favorite photographs of myself uh, in my first Holy Communion dress at the age of eight. And I refer to it as one of the few pictures I have of myself wearing a dress that it was actually a gown, and it was as close to wearing a wedding gown as I would ever get. I talk about people who, who have been of great influence to me. I talk about the fact that my mom passed away the day that Donald Trump was elected. I talk about what my family values. I talk about my spouse. I worked in some of my hobbies. And of course, I had pictures of my three kids. I talked about the fact that my brother passed away from alcoholism and how that impacted me. So what you get out of this bio that I have written was some humor. You get some vulnerability. You get some dimension. You get some values. You can't read my bio and not imagine that I would have a fierce connection to LGBT equality. But that's not the story. It's not like what led me to be an LGBT activist or what led me to be a nonprofit consultant. It's not the story of that particular journey, but just a snapshot of my journey. People will say they don't have time. And then you should tell them that somebody who did this exercise was on vacation and uh, hiking the Adirondack Trail and rode it in her tent by a headlamp, probably similar to the headlamp I used when I uh, played night golf. <laughs> okay. So what do we do with this bio book? Well, first of all, as I said, you get people out in front of it, right? So you have to give people time to really read it. And the instructions when it goes out, first of all, appreciate the hell out of everybody for actually writing one. Acknowledge that it was not an easy task. Um, so thank them. And then ask them to read it as if it was a book, a book of short stories about a group of people. And if they are so inclined, they can mark the book up themes or things that struck them, things that were particularly funny, things they didn't know about the other person that they were reading about. They should 
read the book as they so choose. Now, if you're a tight-knit group of people, uh, humor is your is your jam. I have definitely done this when I have said there will be a quiz, but it won't be graded and it will be fun. So you can do that too. But that requires a little effort on the part of the facilitator or the executive director that you might not have time for, and it's not necessary. It's a good warm-up, though. All right, so what happens when you sit around the table? First of all, don't sell this exercise short in terms of time. This is not a 30-minute exercise. This is a solid hour, maybe 45 minutes. Depends on how many of you there are. And you're going to say, so how many is too many? I've done it with 25 people, and it's been perfectly great. And if, you only, if you're doing it with a leadership team and there are six of you, you might not need an hour. Or it's possible that you'll dig deeper and you'll need the whole hour. But I, I put an hour on the agenda for it. So now we're at the, at the meeting and we've all read our bio books. If you want to have some fun, uh, I have been known to create funny PowerPoint presentations using the bio books as a, which of your colleagues was raised by wolves, right? And then there's multiple choice. I've never had any person who wrote one of these that was raised by wolves, by the way, just, just, just putting it out there. Funny quotes. Uh, which of your colleagues got married uh, wearing red high-top converse, right? And then there's a little, you know, sort of it's a little reading comp. It's a little, it's like who paid attention to the pictures, that sort of thing. And you can have some fun with that and you can throw out silly toys as prizes, right? So anyway, you can start that way as, as just a, an icebreaker for the icebreaker, if you will. But not necessary. Just kind of fun. Then you want to actually begin a discussion about the book. And there are questions that I ask, and you'll come up with other ones yourselves. Uh, and you'll ask each other questions too. And that's, I think, when it gets really lovely. But uh, the first question always, I think, is, did you learn something about your co- one of your colleagues that you did not know? And you'll just watch every hand go up. Every hand will go up. I learned something about my colleague I did not know. Did anything surprise you? And then we begin to actually talk about the bios themselves. I cannot believe that Andrea wrote her bio in a tent on the Adirondacks while on vacation. Like, that's crazy. Then the facilitator should also ask, talk to me a little bit about the writing of this and leave it as open as possible. Tell me a little bit about the writing of this bio. I found it really hard. I couldn't decide if I should blank. It was hard to keep it to two pages. I wanted to cop out and only include pictures. I actually spent more than 90 minutes, Joan, because I, I, ha- I was at four pages and I had to cut it to two. And even making the font smaller didn't help. I was really surprised that I actually put that. Like, I, I actually said something on paper that I don't think I, not that I haven't told some people, but that I, I kind of went there. Some people found having a model autobiography to be helpful so that they sort of 
kind of knew what to expect. Once people read the whole book, uh, they, they have all kinds of comparison issues. Well, Rafi was so vulnerable. I, I feel like I didn't even skim the surface. Like, I feel really guilty that I didn't actually, you know, I was so, I so admired Rafi for what, what she had to say. And you just start talking about it. And another question you can pose to each other is, did you read it and find yourself curious to know more about something? And the person facilitating can model that, you know. I, you know, I found myself curious to know whether or not you are still in touch with the aunt that essentially raised you. Where does she live today? Because what's going to happen is you read these books, they're going to feel like short stories that leave you a little hanging. So there'll be a curiosity section to it. And then we want to move. You want to leave yourself a good amount of time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, to flip chart the common threads. What were the themes, right? What were the common values it felt that came across in every bio? This is the bridge. The bridge from what does the bio say to eat about us as individuals to what is it that we as a group value? So you flip chart these values. Make folks dig deep. Have them tease them out, right? Trust. Well, come on, talk more about that, right? Just get people talking, not just one word. Collaboration. You know, it has to be more than a word. Use the phrase Tease that out a little bit. What did you see across all the bios? What do you mean by trust? Then, and this is the most important thing, is then a question like, let's now think about what's up on this flip chart in terms of what we learned about the personal values of this team of people, and let's connect it to what we see as the values of our work, our organization. Where are they similar? Where are they different? If you have not actually had a conversation about organizational values, that's okay. Because this exercise could in fact be the perfect bridge to the development of organizational values. And you could design the retreat in such a way that that discussion, in fact, follows the autobiography. But where you want to get at the end of this exercise is you want people to really more deeply understand what motivates people, what is their story, what are the values that their stories reveal about them. You want to really appreciate and acknowledge the journeys people have been on, because I guarantee you, you're going to read about journeys. Some of them will be hard to read. That's what you want to take away from the, from the reading of the book about the people with whom you do this work. 
But then taking it a step further, this is how you begin to bond people and how you bond people to your work. And how you bond people to your work is so much about what are my personal values, what drive me and motivate me, how do I operate in the world, and how does that connect to how we do our work and the values that underpin that work. And I need to be able to see that I fit, that I have a place that my voice matters. And I really don't mean to overpromise. That's what I believe my foolproof icebreaker can do when people dig in and when it is facilitated with a compassion and a truth-telling that allows people to further reveal that asks, enables people to ask questions out of caring curiosity. And when the icebreaker comes on a home under the umbrella of values, both personal and organizational. And if you want to go back to the beginning of this podcast, and think about why icebreakers fall flat on their face time and time and time again is because they reveal nothing about the person to your left or the person to your right. Yes, I happen to like any kind of ice cream that has coconut and chocolate. What have you learned about me? Absolutely. Nothing. Maybe somebody else at the table likes coconut and chocolate ice cream, and we can go, yippee, but our work is too hard. Requires us to go too deep to waste a damn second on what flavor ice cream we like. It demands that we know value and appreciate the posse of leaders that have come to this work to do this hard work, to make this beautiful music, to share our history. Whatever it is your organization does demands heart. It's not transactional. It's relational. And if you use an autobiography exercise like this to talk only about how many cats you have and how cute they are, you miss the opportunity to reveal enough about yourself to your colleagues so that you can share in the community that is demanded of a thriving nonprofit. Maybe that's what we're looking for when we talk about icebreakers. Maybe what they are are community builders. I don't know. I'm not sure that's the answer, but there must be a community of kindred spirits that lead together. And that doesn't just happen. You have 
got to invest in it. So whether you call it a team building exercise, I wouldn't even call it an exercise, damn. Think about what you want to call it. And if you have to put Icebreaker on the agenda, please have it have a preamble. We do this work in community. We are kindred spirits in a movement to change the world around X. Our ability to know one another deeply is central to our ability to have an impact on those we serve. It may just be icebreaker on the line, but it is your job as a leader to frame it in such a way that people understand its value, grab onto an an exercise like this, and grab every little bit of juice out of it. So. Please, please, please do not defer to a board chair who says, please, let's just do a short icebreaker. Or can't we just cut the icebreaker? Or people are going to have dinner together. They'll talk about stuff. No, it needs to be a facilitated and guided journey about people's journeys, about their values, because it takes a community of kindred spirits to change the world. Thanks for all you do. And I'll see you next time. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.